1: is brought to you by Triple Summit Advisors. Triple Summit Advisors brings a passion for value investing and practical financial planning strategies. Triple Summit Advisors helps clients at all stages of life, from those just starting their careers to retirees, with a focus on young professionals who want their financial lives to be more than just earning and spending. Triple Summit Advisors provides financial planning and investment management for clients because those tools are essential to achieving personal goals, whatever they may be. They practice what they preach and believe in having skin in the game. They invest alongside their clients and are collectively one of their firm's largest clients. Triple Summit Advisors share strategies, knowledge, and perhaps even a, a little wisdom that will help their clients gain control of their financial lives, grow wealthier, and sleep more soundly at night. To learn more, go to www.triplesummitadvisors.com. Hello, and welcome to Jason Cabins Experience. I'm your host, Jason Cavens. Here at Kavnis HR, we're doing a crowdfunding campaign that ends next week. You can donate or share by going to our link at crowdfunding. Our guest today is Tom Colzer. Tom, are you ready to be great today? Absolutely. Tom is a founder and CEO of Aweber, the leading email marketing and automation platform for small business, where he is actively involved in the company's strategic direction, growth, and evolution. Over the company's 20-plus year history, Tom has nurtured Aweber from a small startup to a robust organization that has enabled over 1 million customers to grow the business, all without public or VC funding. Tom laid the foundation for Aweber while working at a computer hardware firm in the mid-1990s, where he realized sales prospects were falling through the cracks due to the lack of proper, proper follow-up. By automating the delivery of personalized follow-up emails to prospects, company-wide sales skyrocketed, and sales associates had additional time to spend pursuing new prospects. Tom, thanks for being here today. First, am I seeing the name of your company correctly? Is it Aweber? Hey Weber?
0: Yeah. Okay, yep, okay. You got okay. it. <sighs> okay. I just want to make like, sure so you never know how people name companies these days, right? <laughs> yeah. It was uh, born out of automated web assistant and oh, it nice. kind of got, it got shrunk down to a Weber cause you can't name your company, a web ass. That, <laughs> that would be inappropriate. <laughs> no, that <laughs> so probably <name> be
1: <laughs> That'd be probably bad. <laughs> yeah. So first thing, what is small, define small business from your definition? I think there's a lot, I think, cause I think the SBA's definition definitions come to 500 fewer people it's to me it's <laughs> yes. not a small business, right? So what's your definition of small business?
0: Yeah, for us and and wh- who we typically work with, you know, is, is your small mom and pop kind of business where it's <laughs> they themselves and and, and they're it. Um, you know, most of our customers tend to be less than 50 employees, 50 to hundred employees at the most. Um, we do work with some larger, but it tends to be more in the realm of like a department within a much larger enterprise, uh, you know like Comcast or something like that we'll work with a specific department within within that business. but for us, you know small businesses is typically fifty employees or less.
1: Now does um, revenue make a difference in defining the small business or is this based on number of people?
0: for us no not not so much i I've found that the revenue doesn 't tend to impact how the business necessarily operates. More in how the business operates is, is defined by like how many people you have as to whether or not you have defined roles for specific things within the business, or you have somebody like a founder that's doing everything that's like a jack of all trades. Uh, and that like kind of education experience level is different for, for, for businesses and, and people in those roles in those businesses. So you, you've had the company 20 years and
1: never bought an outside off plenty, which I think is quite impressive like how have you pulled this off? Right. I, was it a challenge to, to keep it, you know, quote unquote bootstrap and, you know, customer money? Did you get pressure from like VCs? Hey, you have a great company to, be to invest. How did you work through How did you work through all that?
0: Yeah. There's multiple layers to that question. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, it starts with, you know, just having, having a business and having a product that solves a problem for end users in a way that they're willing to trade money for those services and those solutions. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of businesses run under kind of the, the eyeball framework of like, hey, I get more eyeballs. I don't necessarily need to have money from, from those users in order to sustain. And the sustainability comes from, you know, VC or PE you know, private equity funding um, that, that that's kind of the revenue driver and they build enterprise value just based on having a larger audience. For me, it's always been uh, around delivering a really great product. You know, building a team, a great team around that product to support the product, um, and then having customers that that are supporting you at the at the same time. So it's kind of that virtuous circle of the three things together uh, that, that make a company sustainable in the long term. Because a company that is just you know funded via private equity or VC funding is only as good as the last check they have. If they can't survive off the revenue that they're driving from their users, when that funding dries up, if they don't have another option, they're out of business and now you've left all those users hanging. So it's about balancing that like growth rate with what you can sustainably um you know, finance internally and so forth. So there's, there's different approaches to, to the business. You know, at the end of the day, I still own a hundred percent of the equity of the business. Um, there's, there's no outside force besides our customers that really drives how we make decisions, which is totally different than a, a funded company because you have equity shareholders that you make decisions differently based on that. Your timelines are entirely different. Like it just, it changes the whole dynamic around how you provide value to your users in the world. So, and, and how you ultimately treat your team as well internally.
1: Tom, do you have any original people from when you were here, like 20 years ago?
0: Uh, n- Almost. So my, our COO, our chief operating officer, Sean Cohen has been with us a r- almost that long. Um, but uh, you know, so I, r- I ran everything myself, literally all by myself for the first two years. So um you know, and from there it was was growing. So Sean was in the in the single digit number of hires uh, from from when I started the company many, many years ago. So and he's been with us a long time. And we have a number of folks that have been with us for over a decade now, which is really cool. <laughs> and how
1: many people do you have working for you now?
0: Uh there's close to a hundred. So
1: so I know on yeah. your LinkedIn profile you have your company values on there, which I think is great that your values like up front and like everyone knows who they are. How have you dealt with this? Mm-hmm. Like obviously like the more people you have, I think it's harder if you like instill your values in more people. You, it's hard to have one or more conversations. How do you make sure all these new hires that you may or may not meet um are instill the values of the company?
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, one, writing them down, <laughs> start, you know, start there. Like we have them on our blog. We have them internally. It's part of surprisingly, we have an email follow-up process for when somebody starts with the company that helps train them over time and kind of educates them around the core values as well as other systems and processes that we have internally. Like we use our own tools to do those things. Um, But it's really, you know... The, core values and and getting everybody kind of up to speed on them is about making sure that everyone along the way understands what they are and why they exist so that it's not just me that's helping to train and teach new folks about those. You know, I, I say that our core values aren't necessarily, they're, n- they're not like rules and they're not, um, they're, well, there are kind of rules, but like they're guidelines around how members should operate in my absence or in the absence of any other manager. It's it's how we go about making decisions. It's kind of like you run the you run the checklist and it's like, okay, does it meet this one, does it meet this one, does it meet this one? Yes, okay, that's probably a good decision to move forward. And it's like if if it doesn't meet some of those, then there's probably some additional conversation that needs to go on around whatever the decision is that that's trying to be moved forward there. So it's you know it's how team members operate when when I'm not present or when others aren't present to, to be able to give input on certain things, which I can't be everywhere. (laughs) So that that would be insane. You know, Tom, so do you and your team
1: like revisit the core values like once a year, once a month, or these pretty much been like what they've been since the beginning of the company.
0: Um, they definitely haven't been around forever. Uh, I'm trying to think, I don't think we wrote them down. I don't know when exactly we wrote them down, but it was, Definitely not in the first five years. I think we probably at like, you know, maybe seven years in is when we like first wrote down like what our actual core values were. It was kind of like, we all, we all kind of had a general idea of what they were um, and how we operated, but it had never really been formally written down. Uh, And we've modified them, I want to say three times since then, like where we've just kind of subtly tweaked them as, circumstances have changed and as the world around us has changed um you know we we've we've changed them um i can't say that there's like an official monthly or annual review process on them it's more uh you know somebody flags internally like hey this isn't quite how we operate anymore like the world's changed or the business has changed or our users have changed in some way where we need to adapt um and it just kind of becomes a conversation and and gets modified from there you know, could we look at it more often? Sure. But there's a lot of other things to do as well. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> you know? yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, there is.
1: So, Tom, um, for follow-up, what do most people get wrong about follow-ups? Because like, you, cause you'll see, like, you know, you hear some people say follow-up, in you know, a hundred times if you had to or two, you get to know a yes. I've seen schedules say, like, follow-up number one after three days, follow-up number two after seven days. You see everywhere, right? But what do sure. people get wrong follow Is it just people just don't follow-up in general? That's what they get wrong about it?
0: I think a lack of follow up definitely is 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 a problem. I think that um there there's a fundamental difference between following up in a way that adds value versus a way that's just like buy my stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and there's there there's you know how are you solving a problem that somebody might have um without necessarily you know, forcing them to buy something right off the bat. I think that there's a, a a balance in, in how you kind of like weave that, um, that value line there. So, you know, if somebody comes so like I had a friend recently um, on a, Super recently now, but like at the beginning of the pandemic, he was in the fire services business where like the, if you have a commercial space and you have the fire extinguishers everywhere, like their, their company comes and services those, make sure they're at the proper pressures and whatnot. And he's like, Hey, you know, how do I like all these companies are shutting down? Like, how do I keep in touch with them via email in a way that keeps what we do top of mind So that they can, you know, so they come back to us later when they do reopen their offices and they need their stuff certified again. Um, And I was like, Well, what what are the problems that people are thinking about right now? And it's like, you know, at that point in time, I was like, okay, I'm shutting down my office. I might not have anybody there for several (laughs) weeks at a time. It's like, how do you avoid not coming back to like moldy, nasty refrigerators and free like break room refrigerators and freezers? How do I make sure I don't have pipe burst if I'm in an area of the world that's cold? Because back in March when uh you know, when when that all started going down worldwide. And it's like you know, thinking about how you can solve problems for people in the space that you're familiar with. So it's kind of within their wheelhouse of, of you know, areas of expertise that they have. Um, and so it was solving that user's problem without directly saying like, hey, buy my, you know, fire extinguisher services for another year. It's like, how do I be a part of solving problems for their their customers? And it's really about kind of stepping back from what I as a business ultimately want people to do Versus, like, how can I be of value? And then that user ultimately saying, hey, they keep solving my problems. Like, imagine if I paid, you know, if I bought something from them, how much better it would be. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of running that balance there.
1: Yeah, I think we are all been through all this, been through this. I'm, 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 I'm going to oversimplify this. Like, one, you get one email from a, from a company day one, buy my product. Day two, you see them about my product. Day three, <laughs> what are you waiting for? This is the best deal ever. Versus another company sends you day one, you like an email newsletter day six send you like a access to a previous webinar they did you know so each email like add value right so yeah i definitely think a lot of companies need to do a better job of that
0: Absolutely. So even even things like you know when you buy a car, like what what is the follow up that you most often get from the dealership? It's you know buy the undercoating service <laughs> and buy the you know the extra floor mats and buy the extended insurance versus like hey, how about you teach me how the heck to use this new car? Like they've all got these fancy infotainment systems now, you know GPS and all that kind of stuff built into them, and like I as an end user might not know how to use it in this. So like what are the simple tips and tricks that you can teach me as a new New consumer, like how to consume the product that I already have. And then, hey, along the way, sprinkle in the, hey, you know, the winter season's coming up, you know, rust causes, you know, X number of car failures over the years. Like if you want to extend the life of your, the, uh, your vehicle, you know, get the undercoating, whatever, you know, function for it. So it's, it's about kind of weaving in the value with also the sale aspect of things of, of driving more revenue. So it's, it's not just the buy my stuff. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah. So Tom, is there a, like a fine line or a breaking or like a definition between following up and crossing over to spam and what is spam?
0: Well, I, there's there's multiple definitions of spam. You know, in in the years ago, spam was uh, emails that uh, you don't have permission to send. So, like, I never requested an email from you, so you can't send me email. That would be the traditional definition of spam. These days, uh, you know, it's more about I'm. It's more about emails that I no longer want. So, I might have previously asked for an email from you and received emails happily from you, but then they shifted subject and I'm no longer interested in that subject and I consider your email spam. That's, I think, how most people define spam these days. Um, So first and foremost, it comes down to making sure that you have permission to send emails to people. The the cold emails that people often talk about sending for prospecting and that sort of stuff, that's spam. (laughs) That's out and out spam. I didn't ask for email from you Particularly, it's bulk email. Like it, it's out and out spam. It should go to the spam folder. I have no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Um, you know, if I requested an email from you before, let let's say you run a, a golf range and I requested updates about, um, you know, golfing and events and those sort of things at your uh, you know place of business, and all of a sudden you start sending me stuff about you know the car wash that you open down the street. I as an end user, I'm going to call that spam. And I as an email marketing provider, I'm going to call your, you know, I'm going to say that your account is spamming because you're now sending emails to people that they didn't request and you don't have permission to send. So it's, you know, making sure that your stuff is relevant to what it is that they originally requested and that it was requested first and foremost. So um, those are, I think, the two biggest kind of uh, important keys when you, when you're thinking about sending email.
1: But Tom, you know, they've seen you know, a personalized emails. Like, suppose someone has a, has a list of a thousand people on this. list. And, and to me, personalizing is more than you know, changing the first name, right? Or changing the tag, first name tag. But then again, is it really realistic for someone like to type one by one, a thousand emails to make it personalized? Is there a way to get around this? Is there a system set up to like, personalize it even more? How does like a small business owner like work through this?
0: Sure. Uh well I think it you know a lot of that comes down to when you're when you're asking for people to subscribe to 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 get your information how can you ask like demographic or other relevant questions about your you know about your business and about that person's interests in order to you know segment and target uh and personalize the messages that you're sending. So I often use um a uh, pet shelter as, as an example, because it's like, you know, I, as a user, I might go look at a, a a pet shelter and like, I might be interested in getting a dog. Well, Hey, on the subscribe form for send, send me the new, new pets that you get in that I can potentially adopt. And you know, that, that particular facility might have cats and dogs and bunnies and who, who knows what, well, you know, a bunch of different things. But like I am really only interested in dogs. So if you get a whole run of cats on one particular week, and all you send me week after week is cat emails, I'm going to look at those as not interesting, and I'm probably going to unsubscribe, or I might mark them as spam. Whereas if when I sign up for your newsletter to get the new adoption emails, if I could just check a box that says, hey, I'm interested in dogs, Well, now what can you do as a business owner? You can segment your emails and only send me the emails that have things to do with dogs in them. Um, And that's the sort of stuff that like platforms like AWeber uh, allow our end users to do really easily. And we can even do stuff where um, you can conditionally do it. So like I can have a section that's cats and a section that's dogs and a section that's bunnies, and I can send it out to all, all three groups all at the same time. But depending on how I'm tagged as a user, I might only ever see the dog section of that newsletter. Um, whereas you as a business put together one newsletter with these three different sections that are specific to each one of those um, users that get them on the other end. So there's, there's lots of ways to kind of personalize and make those messages dynamic that don't involve a whole lot of work and that are really easy for people to do that add a lot of value at, at the end of the day.
1: So, Tom, let's say I get an email from someone. I'm like, what is this? I have no idea what this is. And I'm it as spam. Like, how big of a deal is it to that company that gets marked spam? Like, does something really happen to it? Is like some agencies in the, in the, in the sky that keeps track of that stuff and that gives companies grades for spam notifications?
0: Sure. Yeah. So, in, in, the, in the email industry, kind of behind the scenes, those are called uh, feedback loop emails. Um, so, often abbreviated as FBLs. Um, and, and basically, so like, let's use, um, let's use, uh, Hotmail, for example. Uh, when somebody hits the, this spam button, you're gonna, like, I is, um, I as the ESP at running AWeber, we receive a copy of that that says, this person hit the complaint button. They marked this particular message as spam. Um, so we automatically unsubscribe that user. Um, but it also goes into kind of our algor- our reputation algorithm that measures kind of the, the, the basically the reputation of that individual sender. So like, let's say you send out an email to all of your HR customers and one of them hit the spam button in Hotmail. We're, we're going to get notified about that uh, and we're going to use that as, as a part of your reputation score. But Hotmail and Microsoft also uses that as a score around the reputations of your business and the emails that you send as to whether or not in the future they're going to let your emails go to the inbox or they're going to send more of them to the the spam folder. So it you know one individual complaint is probably not a big deal. You know, dozens of complaints around a message that you send out to to you know hundreds or even thousands of people, that can be a problem because it 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 shows a Pattern that people don't want what you have. I think it's important to realize though that it's, you know, your email reputation as a sender is not just based on people clicking the spam button, it's also based on people clicking uh, your emails themselves. So whether or not they receive the email and they open it, do they read it and scroll it? So, like when I'm in Gmail or when I'm looking in Yahoo or Hotmail, those providers can see that you're scrolling the email just like you and I as a website owner, we can tell when people are scrolling and reading the content that's on our website uh, to to gauge our user interest. So... Those mailbox providers are also determining whether or not you're interested in the, the content that you're sending based on that. And then whether or not I, I click the emails or I click the links that are within those email, or yet again, whether or not I reply to that email, whether I forward that email to somebody else, hey, check this out, this is really interesting um or uh, whether or not I file that email away in my folders, you know, and I save that for later. Those all have an implied uh, importance to them. And so the mailbox providers are able to gauge whether or not your audience is actually interested in uh, what it is that you're sending out so that they can make future decisions on how to say, hey, emails from Jason, they should go to the inbox because his audience really wants what he sends. And overwhelmingly, people have told us that based on how they've interacted with those emails versus you know, an actual spam message People delete it, they mark it as spam, they don't read it. You know what I mean? Like they're not forwarding it to other people. They're not filing away for later. So those, those all have very important signals. So it's, it's not just about that, you know, this is spam button. It's also about those overall interactions.
1: Um, so what happened in this situation? Like I, I suppose I have, I have a newsletter. Someone signs that for, right? So I send the newsletter, you know, next week. They read it and like, man, mm-hmm. yeah, this is what I thought it was going to be. And they hit spam. Is it not because okay. can spam? Even though they sign up for the newsletter, and like, how how would I prove that no, they actually signed up for the newsletter while they didn't spam? How does that work?
0: Well, there's you know, there's like I mentioned, like you know, a one-off report where somebody marks something as spam, not really probably a not a big deal. Okay. You know, it's kind of like, there's, it's, it's like that signal to noise ratio kind of thing. It's, there's always going to be some element of noise and out of a thousand people, you're always going to get a couple of people that are just going to mark it as spam, even if it's not, um, you know, and, and because everybody's spam, definition of spam is different, you know, it might not be interesting to that person. It might not be what they suspected it was and that, for a lot of end consumers, the easiest way for, for them to not get an email anymore is to market a spam. They don't understand necessarily the ramifications of what that does to the sender. Um, but that's also why you make it easy for people to unsubscribe. You don't bury it at the bottom. You don't try to change the font color or make it really, really tiny. Like if somebody wants to unsubscribe from my newsletter, I absolutely want them to unsubscribe because it's absolutely the best thing for the overall health of, of our email m- you know, campaigns and the email ecosystem at large. Um, so I wouldn't worry about it one or two. It's more about the, the systematic impact that, you know, dozens or hundreds of people uh, marking them as spam could have. And Tom, all this ties into, I think it was called performance-based email marketing. Um yeah yeah ultimately you know your performance based is is just about the you know looking at the metrics uh, that you have around around your campaigns whether you know the good open rates and good click through rates and you know your your overall response rates that you're having if if you have a a low engagement list like if you're you know, sending out messages and you're getting less than you know five to ten percent open rates. Like, you've really got kind of systematic issues with what it is that you're doing that you should be really looking at and and evaluating how you could do better and how you could engage more of your audience more regularly, or whether or not you even need to prune your list. So, like over time, you know, I might come to you for a particular problem, and sign up for your newsletter where it's relevant to me at that time. Whereas later, you know, so like using the, the pet adoption and, you know, example I had earlier, like once I've adopted my pet, I no longer need to get new, you know, I, I no longer need to get emails about dogs anymore. So it's not relevant to me anymore. So I might not market a spam, but I might just delete that email every time I get it without reading or clicking through on anything. So if I, as a user have not engaged in what it is that you're sending over time, I might not have unsubscribed but I've essentially unsubscribed. So in order to maintain the overall reputation of your program, it's best to kind of prune those people from your list because they're already gone and you continuing to send to them over time. You know, if, you know, initially 40% of your list is opening, engaging with your email, and eventually it goes down to 30 and then 20 and then 10 and then five, what is that really telling a mailbox provider? It's saying, Hey, this email, these emails are less and less relevant. So hey, maybe you should start putting them in the spam folder. And you don't want to do that. You don't want that to happen. So it's best that you maintain that engaged subscriber base and periodically prune people off that haven't engaged in you know, six to 12 months, uh, depending on the business. So it, it, yeah, every business is a little bit different, but that, that's generally what we tell folks. So
1: Tom, what advice you have for small business owners who are looking to like automate the email marketing, sales marketing experiences? What they should be, what should they be looking for?
0: Oh, that—that's well, a wide open question. The, um, you know, it's honestly kind of hard to answer because it's pretty wide open. The, um, you know, I think. Starting with with something, I think a lot of businesses don't do anything because they don't know what to do, Um, and I think it's it's really important to just start somewhere. You know, when you're when you're writing a newsletter or you're writing something to keep your your customers up to date with whatever is going on in your business. Oftentimes these same businesses are already posting on Facebook. They're already posting stuff on Twitter. They might have a blog that they're posting content on. It's, More often than not, like the same sort of thing that could go in your, in your newsletter is, is what you should be really sending out. And that you're more likely to reach a higher percentage of your audience by, by sending it via email than relying on social media or, um, or a blog and somebody coming back to your site to, to, to get those updates. Um, so start somewhere and then look at it as I'm not sending to a hundred people or a thousand people or 10,000 people. I'm sending to one person. I'm sending to Jason. You know what I mean? Like I'm sending it to you and I need to write it as though I'm writing to one person and not as though I'm writing to many, many people because at the end of the day, when somebody's reading it, (laughs) they're reading it by themselves, (laughs) particularly these days. But like, you know, they're reading it by themselves. They might be you know, at home, they might be out, they might be riding public transportation or whatever. They might be on their phone, they might be on their computer, they might be lying in bed, they might be on the toilet. Who knows? But like, it's one person. Um, and, And and so, the more you can write to a specific individual and address their issues, the more likely you are to um, engage and and really connect with your audience at large um, by by looking at it as writing to one person and solving that one person's problems, uh, and then it just kind of it snowballs from there. So it's it's really just about getting started and and thinking thinking small before you really worry about. Bigger scale issues that you may or may not get to. So,
1: Tom, about a year ago, you made uh, Aweb a web remote first company. Was well, that based solely on because of COVID and the coronavirus? Was something you're thinking about? Or was that a pre-COVID decision? And can you talk about the process of you know, making that decision to become a, a remote first company?
0: Yeah, it's um, well. Initially, obviously, it was due to COVID, so we shut our office down in like mid March, uh, twenty twenty. Uh, I don't remember the exact date specifically. <laughs> March was kind of a blur, um, and then uh, we operated remotely for. I want to say we made the official decision sometime in May, and I've always been like we had we had kind of your prototypical like tech startup type office with the foosball tables and movie rooms. And, you know, we had lunch every day with the professional chefs and stuff like we had, we had a really, really nice office and everybody was local here in the Philadelphia area of uh, Pennsylvania. And, um, when we, uh, you know, when we worked together on a daily basis, I was always really big around having everybody together and not having like Um, you know, kind of a hybrid office type setup where some people were in the office and some people were out of the office because we've, we've done that in the past and it just doesn't, it didn't work in the sense that the people that are in the office, you know, they have the water cooler conversation or they have the little meeting in the, in the room, you know, in the meeting room and, and four other people jump in because they happen to see it going on. Because it's, you know, glass office kind of thing, and and you could see what's going on really easily. And people jump into conversations, and then those conversations don't tend to get documented and and retained in the same way. So anybody that's remote immediately becomes uh, kind of at a disadvantage for communication, and they get left out of decisions, they get left out of just the general conversation, they don't know what's going on. Because the people in the office just kind of take for granted that everybody that needed to be in the loop was in the loop because they were all there, even though they might not have been. So I was always really big on making sure that everybody was there and we have a flexible work environment, you know, to the to the, the most that we could. But like it was always actively encouraging everybody to be in the actual office. Um, and the decision to, to kind of stay remote really kind of came around for a multitude of reasons. You know, COVID kind of... F- Forced it to some extent, but it also it forced it in the sense that it put our entire team on an even playing ground. In the sense that we were all remote all the time, and it really changed how we needed to interact as as a team and as a company, and uh, how we how we had meetings, how we made decisions. Um, what things were done asynchronously via documentation and just comments on documentation versus uh, a zoom call or, you know, going back and forth and chat on, on Slack. Um, So when we all became remote, it changed those interactions and it really showed how, for me anyway, I think the, the kind of the defining point was the fact that we, I felt like we made actually better decisions remotely than we did in person. Certain decisions definitely took longer, but I felt like we got a bigger cross section of the team to have input on things that they nece- that they wouldn't have otherwise necessarily had input on because they weren't part of the meetings. Whereas now all the meetings were documented or in many cases, there wasn't even a meeting to begin with. It was just documentation and a big, you know, a hundred, you know, comment threads back and forth. Um, but it was stuff where like our customer service team, our customer solutions team could read those and get the context from that. Our product team could read those and get context from that. Our engineering team that then went to implement the things that our product teams came up with and you know that our customer solutions team came up with, they could read the backstory and really understand the, the customer problems that that we were having in order to, you know, work on the actual implementations that we have. So like the communications completely changed and in, in my opinion, for the better, um. So that was kind of one of the biggest drivers, but it was also, there's an element of being able to hire the best talent that we can, whereas we were originally kind of locked to the geographic area around Philadelphia that was within commute distance or where we could convince people to relocate, to be with us physically. I now don't need to do that. We're, you know, even, you know, a year into the pandemic, you know, probably, what is that like nine, 10 months since we made the official decision to stay remote, we're in I've lost track. I think we're in seven different States. We have team members already. We started in three because Philadelphia is like right on the corner of, uh, you know, Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Delaware. So we were already in three. Um, but like we have, we have folks up and down the East coast now. Um, and we've got a few, uh, that are, that are kind of starting out in the Midwest now. So we're starting into different time zones and whatnot. And it's only a matter of time before we end up with folks in different countries. So, um, so it's, it's been, it's been interesting to, you know, it's not been, it's, it's not all been smiles and, and happiness along the way. There are definitely <laughs> been a, there are a fair share of issues, but, uh, I think there's things that we can work through. Um, I think more than anything, our, our team wants to get together. Like there's, there's certain folks that I work with every day that I talk to every day on, on calls for one reason or another. And like, I, I you know, I have no context of how tall they are because I've never <laughs> seen them stand up <laughs> which is really weird <laughs> you know so it, it's uh, it'll be interesting when we get to meet in person for the first time uh, you know most of that is is not a function of working remote that's just a function of COVID because I believe strongly that the in-person you know bonding that comes from just being directly in association with somebody I think is is helpful so we, we do plan to have you know kind of company and team Retreats, you know, once or twice a year, just to get that kind of like togetherness uh, stuff, and they just create the personal bonds that, like, those of us that were in the office beforehand, like, already had a good working relationship with a lot of those folks. I know all the personal stuff because I got to eat lunch with them and so forth. Whereas, new folks don't have that through anything other than you know slack conversation emails and and uh you know the periodic zoom calls and you know yeah. the playing among us and you know the the goofball stuff that we do we we'll get together and we you know, we've had comedy nights and uh um cooking classes over zoom and a lot of those sort of stuff which is cool you do this as, as a remote company but like it's been different just because we've been restricted with covid so we're looking forward to hopefully getting back to normalish in the hopefully not too distant future
1: Go Fast zoom, I bet that was pretty interesting. I, would like, I don't know how I' like to watch that, but that was pretty good.
0: yeah, we've done a bunch of different stuff. there was one uh, we've had team members talk about uh, we had one team member over lunchtime talk about pickling and like making pickles and and like pickling all kinds of other different stuff and like just it's kind of a cool way to show off the other team talents like we all have you know personal passions and pursuits outside of what, the the passion that we have around the things that we're doing at aweber. Um, but it's, it's just been cool to get to know people in a different way to like kind of get a, a little bit of a peek inside their home and inside their life that you wouldn't otherwise get, you know, just going to an office every day. I think, you know, like what you see behind people is even just kind of telling around how they are as a person and, you know, their eccentric natures and, and so forth. So it's just, I don't know. It's cool. It's different. So Tom, you mentioned
1: Zoom and Slack. Are there any other tools that you could recommend to help run a remote company?
0: yeah I think uh, you know that we we don't so we we use Google Meet internally, so we use uh, uh, that for video conferencing predominantly. I spend a lot of time on zoom with with other external partners, but we use Slack internally, Google Meet, um, you know Google Hangouts kind of stuff. Uh, we're also big uh, fans of the Atlassian stack, so like Confluence and JIRA for project management, documentation really key to have documentation consistent documentation and things that um, other team everybody in the whole company can update any of our docs at any time so like if you see something's out of, out of date <laughs> there always is you know update it um, you know it helps pass on that uh, that learning those learnings to other people and that knowledge to other people you know we I often talk about um, you know some folks think of like to think of themselves as like the knowledge directory and that that somehow creates it's job security and like i as a founder and as a ceo look at like one person knowing everything about a certain thing and it being completely undocumented you're you're not an asset in my book you're a liability at that point uh, and, and somebody that is really good at documenting things and making it so 10 other people can do the same thing that they've been doing before, they're a huge asset. Um, and, and they create a lot of value because they can go in and problem solve in other areas that a lot of people can't or won't. Um, so it's, it's, it's completely... you know My, my, my hat as a founder and, and CEO is like, I have a completely different perspective on that than I think a lot of the world has. Uh, so it's always interesting to be able to, uh, you know, kind of coach people along what I believe is a more healthy uh, approach to uh, creating job security. <laughs>
1: Tom, so two-part question. Um, talk about some of the challenges you've had as an entrepreneur through the years. And how has being an entrepreneur changed since you started? Or is being an entrepreneur, an, being an entrepreneur regardless
0: of the year it is? <sighs> Um. So I'll take your last question first. So, you know, how has it changed? Um, I think as, as an entrepreneur, you know, obviously the business world and the problem set that we solve with email has certainly changed over 20 plus years. Um, so what email was 20 years ago is not at all what it is today. It's very different. How to make that successful and what our platform is is very different than, than it was many years ago. Um, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a leader of a company and as a a, a team and, and how we serve our customers. Um, I think you go through el- evolutions over time. Like, you know, the skill set that's required to to run a one-person company where was just me is totally different than what it takes to run a ten-person company versus a thirty-person company versus a hundred-person company. Um, so, like, how you set the company up and how you set each of the team up to be successful changes over time. And it, I think as an entrepreneur and founder, it really requires you to change and grow and recognize like what you're not good at. (laughs) And there's a whole lot that I'm not good at Um, and, and hire people that are good at those things so that I can do what I do really well. And that frankly, I'm most passionate about. Um, And I can have other people that are really good at the things that I'm not, and that they can be really passionate about those. And they can also like hold me accountable to the things that I'm not good at that I still need to do. But like help coach me through making me better. Uh, I'm not perfect by any stretch. Um, so I think that that as entrepreneur, I think that's that's probably been the biggest, you know, kind of the biggest area of growth and the biggest kind of struggle overall is just my own personal development and keeping up with what our team needs and what our customers need from me um, and making sure that I'm able to grow or hire the right team members to to be able to support us at that point in time. Um you know I think what our what your first question was like what what was the one like, of our biggest problems yeah, like what you have what have you been your challenges as entrepreneur through the years yeah, I think it's um you know i'm a I'm a part of a um you know kind of business I i don't want to call it a networking group but it's more of a peer support group. Um, and we're in businesses that are all, range the gamut. You know, I tend to you know I would describe ours as kind of a technology software company, and you know I've got others that are more like human human resources oriented, and um, you know manufacturing and and healthcare and those sorts. of. So it's, it ranges the gamut, and the the single biggest problem that we all talk about the most and that we all have in common is. People at the end of the day. <laughs> it's like a computer, I can program to operate a certain way and do it over and over and over again in exactly the same way. Whereas people are all completely unique. No matter what somebody went to school for, I could have five different people that went to school for the exact same thing from the exact same school, and they're all going to apply it completely completely differently. <laughs> um, and then they're all going to bring, you know, their own personal backgrounds and situations together in ways that are going to make their decisions completely differently and that's why, you know, going back to our core values that we talked about why it's so critical to have a core values to kind of try to like dial everybody in, in in a way to get them all kind of operating in a similar pattern to to an extent, but at the same time taking advantage of that uniqueness To not just solve the same problem in the same way over and over and over again, because that, um, you know, those uniqueness is really kind of the spice of where you come up with really creative solutions because you do have all of those different perspectives going in to solve problems. So it's, you know, it's really the people dynamic, I think, that has been the biggest challenge over the years. Everybody has, you know, their, their own backgrounds, but they also have their own agendas, <laughs> um, you know, and, and where one person sees opportunity another might not, um, and their agenda might not necessarily line up with the other person's, but like they ultimately need to, in order to, to really be successful. So it's, it's being able to coach all those people along kind of the, the same path. I think that, that it is the, the most challenging thing that I've found as a leader um, in the technology at the end of the day from a software perspective and like what we core do in our in our business that to me feels really easy it's the people part that is the constant struggle <laughs> what, what's, so. that,
1: what's that saying people your best resource except when they're not
0: yeah sure <laughs> absolutely i'm sure you've got a whole <laughs> book full of them <laughs> yes <laughs> so, so
1: tom next let's talk about your company like can you talk about how and why you started it where is it at right now and what's your vision for your company moving forward
0: yeah, I think um, you know, you alluded in the, the kind of the initial intro, like I started it initially to solve my own problem, uh, really, and and it was I was selling a hardware product and I was doing manual email follow-up when somebody I'd go to computer shows and those sort of things and was you know, kind of wrapping this product and, and getting you know, meeting prospects that weren't convinced to buy right at that time, but I needed to follow up with them and educate them and you know, kind of learn more about them so that I could solve their problems more effectively and And I was doing a lot of that manually, and eventually i wrote uh, I wrote a little program that kind of wrapped a bunch of my like best. Uh, emails and and kind of FAq questions and, and those sort of things that solve a lot of people's problems like after a while you start to see patterns in the questions that you get so you can kind of like you know you've ever worked with that person that like answered the question like at the exact right time when you've had it um, that was really where i was going with the, the email uh, sequence and, and I basically wrote our first you know email automation process uh, back in 97. And, um, you know, the company was really born out of that. And I shared it with a few other people. And then it was just kind of one of those word of mouth because it worked really well. And more and more people wanted in on it. Um, you know, where, where are we going? You know, ultimately kind of what we look at as our company vision is connecting people in remarkable ways. And that is, uh, explicitly not done exclusively through email. So we also, you know, we have a landing page product for putting up, um, you know, web pages and websites. Uh, we have customers that run their entire website, uh, off of just, just our product using, using our landing page product. We also do web push notifications that are used by a lot of bloggers and, uh, like news websites that want to get, um, you know, notifications to you really really fast so we have a variety of different products there and and it's really about creating a community around each of the businesses that we serve so that those those folks can have the interaction and learn from one another in ways that that you can't with with other products and with other businesses so it's really about creating those connections and those bonds and those experiences that they wouldn't have otherwise had um, if they weren't you know, using one of our products to, to communicate and build that audience. So that's, that's kind of really where we're looking to go as, as an overall vision is is really trying to bring more and more people together. So Tom, uh, for the tech part
1: of your company, has a tech piece pretty much remained the same for the years that's been rinse and repeat, or have you like had to update the tech piece for the years?
0: Oh, there there's no part of our software that is in any way original to in 1998 uh it's that's both the blessing and the curse of technology is you constantly have to be kind of reinventing the you know what what you've done before there's new ways to do it there's more efficient ways to do it um and at the same time like email has evolved over the years like when we first started back in 98 it was you know you could you could Enter a subject line and a plain text message, like no fonts, no anything. <laughs> like now it's like, you know, you create images and you relay things out and you can have dynamic content like we were talking about earlier, so that like I only see the dog emails and you only see the cat content. And you know, so there's tons of different personalization and so forth. There's lots of metrics and, and other data that we collect so that our business users can make the right decisions on who to reach out to. Um, you know what what content is most appealing to the audience that they're sending to um, so it's really it's changed a lot and continues to change like we have a full engineering team you know it's it's give or take about half of our team member uh, total count so we're constantly redoing existing things and making them better more efficient the way that they operate um, and also coming up with new new product add-ons and and new ways to add value to our, our users um, businesses
1: so Tom, how's, how has it been for you as far as like recruiting developers? Like on one hand, it seems like, you know, you're, you're, you've been around for 20 years, so you can, you can actually pay people a, a, a decent salary. Sure. Other than you've been around for 20 years, so you know, people might think, well, you're not the exact the most sexiest company to work for as a developer. How has that worked for you?
0: Um, I I don't know anyone that owns a business anywhere that says hiring good people is easy. <laughs> it's Same never going to be easy. Um, so it's always challenging. And even though we've gone remote, like, you know, even hiring remote all around the country and around the world is still challenging because, um, you know, you, you've now, you, you know, where, where we used to get a hundred resumes for a particular position, uh, we're now getting a thousand resumes. And it's like, you know, it's like how, like just the time to sift through those and to be able to give each of those people enough time to, to really vet whether or not they're a quality candidate and whether you take it to a phone conversation and, you know, a tech interview and so forth. So it's like those, those things are all hard to do. Um, I don't, I don't foresee that getting any easier as more of the world goes remote, which I fully, you know, think is going to continue to be, I think there's going to be a return to in person. Because I think a lot of people are really itching for just something different right now. Not necessarily that they want to be back in an office full-time. I think a lot of people really enjoy being remote. I think a lot of people are more productive being remote. Um, and I don't think the remote that we've had for the last year is normal by any stretch of the imagination yeah, of what, what remote, remote work is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, people like
1: teaching kids, taking care of people, babysitting. That's not remote work in the no, true sense.
0: Yeah. No, like my kid, both of my kids uh, go to remote school right now, and my wife is. You know, we're lucky in that she doesn't work. Besides, we we call her the family creative director. Um, because, you know, she runs our family, and uh, you know, it's work. You know, with having the kids, but it's like once once my kids go back to like in person school, like. I'll be here by myself during the day, (laughs) like you know, that'll be very different than the remote is right now. Whereas, like we have family lunches, (laughs) and and uh, you know, I'm I'm fortunate in that like they each have their own room to go work in. Whereas, like I know some of our team members like have kids at the same kitchen table they're sitting at doing doing remote work. So it's you know it's very different right now, but I foresee that's gonna you know it's gonna be an evolution. I think there's gonna be pain before things kind of ultimately kind of settle out into whatever the new normal is that, you know, everybody talks about uh, the new, new normal, (laughs) but uh, you know, hiring is always hard. I think it's always going to, it's, it's never going to get easy. Um, You know, unless you're, unless you're paying five to 10 times market, like it's never going to be easy to hire. And even then, even if you were paying way overpaying for, for any particular role, like it just makes, it, it makes that funnel that much bigger and you get that many more candidates and it just makes it that much harder to sift through and figure out who's the best person. Um, yes. cause it's not an exact science by any stretch of the imagination, no. as you know, and <laughs> I feel back like I'm feel like i preaching to the choir yeah, here. No, and-
1: And back to remote work, I was joking with a friend of mine. I know all the extroverts want to go back to work in person. All the introverts want to stay, like working remotely.
0: Yeah. And that, and that's gonna create its own its own set of problems. Cause now you have now you have that hybrid scenario where people aren't gonna be talking to each other and it's gonna be, you know, for to whatever extent people thought they weren't communicating when everyone was remote, it's gonna be even worse when you have some people in the office and some people external. And that was really that was really the biggest decision on on I think why why we ultimately decided to stay remote was, you know, part of it the technology industry in general is just kind of moving in that direction i found we were just as productive if not possibly more productive remote um and and just being hybrid is just kind of untenable and like there was no way we're going to go back to all in person after having been remote like our turnover would be insane um because a lot of people really like that particularly our our engineers Um, and then
1: do you pay for the people out of state you know you know fly them and move them to philadelphia and all that kind of stuff that'd be expensive (laughs)
0: Yeah. So absolutely yeah. At this point, like we have people, you know, all all over the place. So just getting them all back in one place would be difficult, um, if not impossible. So it's, you know, it'll be interesting, you know, like everything, you know, what what the problems were last year will not be the problems next year, and they won't be the year after that. It's 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 that constant evolution that's part of what keeps it interesting, you know? <laughs> Tom, I understand you have something for our listeners today. Yeah, absolutely. So we have um Complete, our product is completely free. So if anybody is looking to start you know, using email newsletters, email automation, or even setting up a landing page, or frankly, even just starting a website, um, you, know, you can use AWeber uh, completely free uh, to set up uh, a list, to create an email newsletter list up to 500 subscribers. Uh, we have full customer service uh, available for both our free as well as our paid users. Uh, and anybody can check it out. If you go to aweber.com, uh, A-W-E-B-E-R.com, uh, you can sign up for a free account today. Uh, and that's for, for life. So there's, there's no timeline or deadline on that. So hope that everybody check it out. Tom, can you see your social media links for both yourself and your company
1: so people can reach out to you?
0: Sure. You can find if you just punch in Aweber and Facebook, uh, you know, or Twitter, we're, we're, we're on all the usual uh, places. If you punch in Tom Colzer and Twitter, LinkedIn, et cetera, you'll come up with me. Um, but uh, I'm uh, T Colzer on on Twitter. Um, but I, I'm not hard to find. If you go to tomcolzer.com, you can also find all my social links. Or uh, you go to Aweber.com, you can find all of our social links as well. So we're not hard to track down. And we look forward to chatting with anybody that, you know, we can help. Tom, so do you have a favorite or a go-to social media platform? Do I have a favorite? I love email. <laughs> um, I, you know, I definitely, um, you know, it's more social than most people uh, like to think. Um, and I, I spend most of my time on Twitter. I don't, most of my Facebook, uh, post, most of my Facebook participation is more personal private stuff. So I keep a lot of that private there. But for from a business perspective, absolutely hit me up on Twitter. Okay.
1: So you if we have the Link to his gift and social media on the show notes. You can find the show notes at ww.kevinesshtrblog.com and be sure to check out our crowdfunding link and share and donate it at https cavernshr.cl crowdfunding. Tom, this is a great talk, but unfortunately we are come to the end of it now. Can you give us any last minute wisdom on our advice or anything you want to talk about?
0: I would say just get started. Do do something. Whatever that thing is that you've had on your to-do list that you've been like anxious about and and not wanting to get started, just just like put something out there because once it's out there, you, you kind of get over that inertia, you know, that the inertial, uh, and, and you, you, you'll start the ball rolling. So really whether it's starting a newsletter, starting a business, just do something, get it out in the world so you can start getting feedback and and the rest will kind of go from there. But until you get started, you're not going to get any results and you're not going to get any feedback. So just move things forward. Tom, thank you for your time today. really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me on Jason. It's been fun. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you and remember to be great every day.
0: No.